Hello and welcome to this final podcast from the 2011 Conference of the British Society for Gene Therapy, the BSGT, and its European counterpart, the ESGCT, taking place in Brighton. I'm Mira Senthilingam from The Naked Scientists. Day four began with a plenary investigating the uses of gene therapy in infectious disease, including applications in vaccines against malaria, as well as a potential treatment for HIV. The point is that uh, viruses are interested in parasites, and so we assume that the reason that so my name's Greg Towers. I'm a professor of molecular virology at University College London, and we've shown that uh, the HIV-1 virus, the cause of AIDS in humans, uses a protein in, in human cells called NUP358 to get into the nucleus. This is important because we think that if we stop the virus using NUP358, it would be very bad for the virus, and therefore you could use this as a strategy to target HIV uh, and develop new drugs. Uh, this is... Uh, likely to be possible because we know that there are drugs that target similar molecules in the cell called cyclophilins, but they don't target NUP358. So we imagine that we could make a drug that was similar to the cyclosporins that did target NUP358 and not the other cellular proteins, and therefore that would be a uh, potent inhibitor of HIV replication. So in summary, what we've shown is that this protein NUP358 is a cofactor for HIV infection, and we hope, we hypothesize, that that might make it a good drug target in the future. And how would you set about actually making such a drug and actually targeting this? So we collaborate with a chemist uh, at UCL called Dave Selwood who spent a long time studying cyclosporins and how they inhibit cyclophilins and he understands uh, how the uh, different cyclosporin analogues inhibit the different cyclophilin uh, molecules and so Dave will help us design drugs that should be more specific against the NUP358. And are there any thoughts as to how effective this could be? We imagine it would be quite effective because uh, normally the drugs that are used to treat HIV target the virus, whereas in this case it targets the cell, or the host proteins in the cell the virus uses, so it would be difficult for the virus to mutate and avoid those drugs in the way that it uh, mutates and avoids the drugs that are currently in use in the clinic. Greg Towers from University College London. The morning's parallel sessions looked into a variety of fields, including the manipulation of cells and vectors, and also treatments for muscular dystrophies and neurological disorders. This latter session was chaired by Royal Holloway's George Dixon, who also presented his own work on Duchenne muscular dystrophy. My name is Professor George Dixon, Professor of Gene Therapy at the University of London at Royal Holloway College, and my lab works on developing genetic, so-called genetic therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy and other inherited diseases. Uh, today, in particular, we are presenting data on two techniques, two new genetic medicines. One is termed antisense-induced exon skipping. Basically, it's an attempt to modulate RNA splicing, to modulate the way genetic material is handled, to convert a damaged gene and a damaged gene product, which is what occurs in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, into a corrected, well-decoded uh, protein product. And that protein product is called dystrophin. So the antisense therapy is ongoing in the lab, and there are two clinical trials that have been completed, testing a local, as it were, intramuscular delivery of the therapeutic reagent, and secondly, an intravenous infusion to target all the skeletal muscles in the body. 
Now, this technique is amenable to 50, perhaps 60% of patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So for the other 40% or so that are not amenable to that particular strategy, we also describe a gene addition, a gene complementation strategy where healthy functional copies of the gene engineered in the laboratory or in the industry lab are introduced into a delivery agent, a so-called viral vector, and that viral vector will then be used to treat patients either locally or through the bloodstream to deliver the healthy gene to the skeletal muscles and therefore have normal dystrophin expressed and hopefully the progression of the illness will be halted under those conditions. Uh, my name is Philippe Moulier. I'm working in France in uh, a Geniton. We have a product that can actually cure the disease, Duchenne disease, which is a dystrophy. And we have a dog that has exactly the same disease, and we are uh, demonstrating here that by injecting the therapeutic product that we invented, we can actually uh, improve the disease dramatically in this dog model by injecting locally using a perfusion technique and to the arm, the pathology. The product itself is a dual composite. It has a uh, capsid which originates from a virus, a non-pathogenic virus, by the way, and inside the capsid, the viral capsid, we have actually introduced the therapeutic gene to compensate the disease. The genes that is therapeutic is actually, it's not a gene, it's an, it's an oligonucleotide that promotes skipping part of the disease gene and allowing, therefore, to reestablish an open reading frame that uh, results into the production expression of a therapeutic protein. So now is that we have determined the uh, therapeutic dose, the purpose is to move on to the trial to the patients. So my name is Maria Elena Valle. I work in the Institute of Psychiatry of King's College London in the MRC Centre for Neurodegeneration Research. What we are doing is trying to modulate the tau gene uh, regarding the inclusion or exclusion of exantin, which is related to the aggregation of tau in some thauopathies. So we are focusing most in thauopathies like frontotemporal dementia associated with chromosome 17 or Pick's disease, which are, do relate with the imbalance of tau isoforms. And to this end, we are developing lentiviral vectors which uh, induce transplacing with a tau endogenous messenger in neuronal um, cells derived from uh, line mutant mice from tauopathies. So have you set about inducing this change in splicing behaviour? Actually, what we want to do is to have a versatile system to be able to modulate either the inclusion or exclusion because both isoforms can be affected in different thauopathies. And the idea is that if we can translate this to a therapeutical approach, that would be a relief for lots of diseases without cure today. So far, we were able to achieve uh, inclusion of exon 10 at a 35% in uh, mRNA level and around 20% in the protein level. So it's good news because we can achieve a translation of our transplaced transcript. 
And then having changed the inclusion of this exome, what's the resulting behaviour to reduce, I guess, the tauopathies? That's a very good question, but we still don't have um, results from mice because this is a very long experiment. As we had the proof of concept saying, okay, we can modulate this, we are now using the viruses to inject brain of mice, we saw that we could achieve transplacing at the messenger level, at the RNA level, but now we are waiting for these mice to develop the phenotype and see if we can prevent that by the injection of the viruses. Maria Elena Aval from King's College London, and before her, Philippe Moulier from Genethon Paris, and George Dixon from Royal Holloway, University of London. Now, the field of gene therapy is rapidly growing, with new methods of gene manipulation and delivery constantly being looked into. This potential for emerging technologies and the best ways to deliver DNA into a target gene and get it to stay there and be expressed was the topic of discussion in the afternoon plenary. What we understand about basic virus-host interactions and how we can use that knowledge to develop vectors. So that I'm Matthew Weitzman. I'm at the Center for Cell and Molecular Therapeutics, which is at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania. And I just moved my lab from the Salk Institute in California. During my time at the Salk, I've been interested in how do viruses respond to foreign DNA delivered by viruses and viral vectors. In order to understand how we can use viruses to deliver genes to try and treat disease, it's important to understand what this response is to the actual nucleic acid delivered by the virus into the cell. And which particular viruses then have you been focusing on? So we've been focusing on human DNA viruses, and those human DNA viruses that we work on, which are adenovirus, herpes virus and AAV, which is a small parvovirus, all deliver their genomes, their nucleic acid, into the nucleus of the cell. And we think it's important that in the nucleus of the cell is already a genome, our host genome, and these two genomes are now in conflict. At the moment, we're at the early stages of really understanding what is the cellular response. We have shown that the DNA repair machinery that responds to unusual structures and breaks in DNA also responds to these viral genomes that are delivered, whether they be in the context of natural infection or viral vectors. And we've shown that this machinery processes the viral genome to uh, either join it together into concanimers or to cleave bits off the end. We've also shown that the cellular signaling response to the viral genome can lead perhaps to silencing, and that's obviously relevant to using viral vectors. And then I think a very exciting thing that's emerging now in the field is the ability to do genome engineering, where we use bits of DNA to actually engineer and change the host genome. And understanding the principles of how viruses are recognized by DNA repair processes will allow us to, we think, uh, use those machineries in a better way to do genome engineering. So essentially exploit them for your benefit. Yes, this field really uh, benefits from the fact that viruses exploit and harness cellular pathways, and we've done that. And I think that what we've seen at this meeting is a really nice example of the dynamic interactions between understanding viruses to develop vectors and then using vectors to go back and understand virology and biology. And the two really lead each other, stepping over each other to improve the system. So it may seem paradoxical in a way that we're beginning to work gene correction at a time when gene addition strategies are finally achieving 
meaningful, plentiful results. So my name is Kathy High, and I am an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And our laboratory has had longstanding interest in gene therapy strategies for the treatment of hemophilia. We have carried out gene replacement therapy in mice, in hemophilic dogs, and in people with severe hemophilia B. But one could postulate that the next generation of gene replacement is actually gene correction. So instead of giving an extra copy of the gene, if there were a method to go into the human genome, find the specific site where the mutation was, and restore a normal sequence there, that that would then leave a normal copy of the gene under the control of all the normal regulatory sequences on either side of it, and would do all this without the risk of integrating a foreign piece of DNA into the uh, genome at some random location, which is essentially what we do now with gene replacement therapy. So the work that I reported today is work that we've done in collaboration with scientists at Sangamo Biosciences, in which we have used a synthetic molecule called a zinc finger nuclease that were designed to cleave far upstream in the factor IX gene. The zinc finger nuclease introduces a double-stranded break in the gene at just that site, and then we add a donor sequence that comes along and is used as a template to repair the double-strand break using mechanisms that the cell has in place to maintain the integrity of the genome. So as soon as there's a break there, these mechanisms are activated, and if there's a normal donor sequence that the DNA can pattern off of to repair the break, then that'll be utilized and you can install a correction in at least a percentage of the cells. And so we were able to show that by introducing the zinc finger nucleases and the donor sequence using an AAV vector into the livers of hemophilic mice, that we could correct them and restore improved hemostasis at a clinically relevant level in the hemophilic mouse model. Kathy High and before her Matt Weitzman, both from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Now that's almost it for this podcast and for this series from the BSGT conference. A wide range of gene therapy techniques, targets and trials have all been discussed over the past few days. And so before the day closed, I caught up with the head of the BSGT, Adrian Thrasher, from Great Ormond Street Hospital, to hear his views and his personal highlights of the conference. I actually think, you know, right from day one, we've seen that there are true advances in the field. So 10 years ago, we were saying uh, these things don't really work very well. Now we're asking the question, how well do they work and how can we make them work better? So we've, we've seen advances in all fields, so not, not only rare diseases, where in fact patients are now being cured by genetic medicines, but in acquired diseases, so cancer, heart disease, eye disease, so there are re- true advancements, clinical advancements that are in the clinic. And are there any in particular that have shown very high levels, say, of success in the clinic? In rare diseases, for which there are often no other therapies, then we we can see cures. But in in other conditions, in eye disease, heart disease, then then the the prospect for 
patient survival is, is dramatically improving. So even though the trials are in their infancy, I think in the next five, if you ask me the same question in five years' time, then we'll have accumulated a lot more data on patients uh, and we'll be able to assess the outcome. But it re- it's really encouraging. And I guess generally in both gene therapy and stem cell therapy, what do you think might be some of the more significant breakthroughs in the coming months or years? Difficult question. Stem cell therapy is is in its infancy. So uh, the we, we need to understand what stem cells can do. We need to understand how stem cells can be made to do what we'd like them to do. We can do it in the test tube, but we can't necessarily do it uh, in, in people yet. Genetic therapies, I think we're, we're a stage on for that. We're at the point where we can ask the question in people. You know, we have something that really does work in a test tube and in, and in, uh, uh, in animal models. So, so what happens in people? Does it make an effect? Is it clinically relevant? We'll learn that in the next five, ten years. And I guess we'll have an update on it at next year's conference. So next year's conference is in Versailles for the ESGCT. So it's a European society. The British Society is having a, its own meeting in London in uh, March. But uh, we hope to see everybody there. Adrian Thrasher from the Institute of Child Health and Great Ormond Street Hospital. Now that's it from me, bringing you the day's events from the conference of the British Society for Gene Therapy and the European Society for Gene and Cell Therapy. But if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to hear more from the conference, be sure to tune in to the 30th of October edition of the Naked Scientist podcast, coming to you live from the conference at thenakedscientists.com. Otherwise, that's it from me, Mira Senthi-Lingam, from The Naked Scientists. Thank you for listening over these past few days, and goodbye.